I'm Jonathan Bastian. This week on KCRW's Life Examined, getting things done and staying focused is a challenge. But while most of us feel occasionally overwhelmed, a small but increasing group of adults are discovering they may be struggling with something else. When we look at the rates of ADHD in adults in the United States, we estimate that about 4% of adults has ADHD. Mm. However, not even a quarter of them have really been assessed or treated. And getting an ADHD diagnosis, we'll hear one woman struggle and why she knew something wasn't right. I can't sit still and I can't be organized. I used to always say, my husband would talk to me and I would never listen. And I would just always attribute it to, I'm not a multitasker. I can't chew gum and walk at the same time. But what it really was is I was having trouble focusing. Adults with attention deficit and hyperactivity disorder and how a growing awareness can lead to greater acceptance and better treatment. That's coming up on Life Examined. I think we can all agree that staying on task is becoming increasingly challenging. And as we've discovered on the show, attention spans are shrinking. But there could be something else going on. You could be one of a growing number of adults discovering that you've been struggling for years with ADHD. So what's the difference, let's say, between an inability to focus and a psychiatric disorder? Can symptoms emerge as adults, or are ADHD symptoms present since early childhood? Just to be clear, attention deficit and hyperactivity disorder is clinically defined as, quote, a persistent pattern of inattention and or hyperactivity impulsivity that interferes with functioning or development. And as we're about to learn, it's estimated that about 4% of adults in the U.S. have ADHD, and most of them struggle in silence. And only now, with an increasing awareness and acceptance of mental disorders, are people seeking help and getting treated. So has this growing awareness and diagnosis of ADHD also caused a run on the medications? Why are patients unable to get their scripts for Adderall and Ritalin filled? Joining us to help clarify and answer some of these questions surrounding ADHD is Anthony Rostein. He's the chair of psychiatry and behavioral health at Cooper University Healthcare and co-author of The Adult ADHD Toolkit, Using CBT to Facilitate Coping Inside and Out. Well, Dr. Anthony Rostein, welcome to Life Examined. Well, I'm delighted to be here. So I want to get your take on this first. I mean, why is the diagnosis of ADHD increasing in adults? Because it seems like that's something we're reading about or finding out almost every week. I think we should clarify one thing. The diagnosis of ADHD in adults may in large part be due to the fact that there's been an underdiagnosis in adults for the longest time. Uh, When we look at sort of the rates of ADHD in adults in the United States, we estimate that about 4% of the population of adults has ADHD. Mm. However, only about not even a quarter of them have really been assessed or treated. So there's a large number of people out there who were never diagnosed who are discovering it now, and they are discovering it for a number of reasons. One is there's more you know, access through social media uh, to information about ADHD. Um, there's less stigma about it. People who might have been afraid of looking into this in the past or not believed in it are suddenly saying, well, maybe this applies to me. So I think the majority of the reason that there are more people being diagnosed with ADHD is a benign cause, which is that there's now a growing recognition of its existence among people who would have ordinarily not uh, not thought of their problems as being due to ADHD. Another yeah. reason, another though not so good reason, is that there's a lot of social marketing going on by companies like Cerebral and others that we're really trying to get people to, quote, get diagnosed and get on medication. So there's a certain amount of, you know, maybe pushing the idea across where people may not have really have ADHD, but thought, oh, this is a, may, really a way to explain why I'm having problems. And then I'd say there's one other group of people who are looking for performance enhancement in a world that is getting more and more difficult to deal with um, and want to be able to get things done more efficiently. Mm. Um, I, talk, I also talk about the, the, the changing environment. Like there's a lot more to distract everybody. So in a way, you can sort of say, well, are we all getting a little bit ADHD nowadays with all these notifications on our smartphones and on our right. computers going off all the time? But, but I actually think that mo- most of the increase in the diagnosis is actually based in reducing stigma and gaining access to um, healthcare professionals. 
Can you talk a little bit more about the diagnosis? Because sure. the, you know, the descriptors or symptoms are things that I think all of us can identify with in our own That's lives. Right. And, and we even use the term, oh, you're so ADHD yes, in yes. such a colloquial <laughs> way that I think that, you know, you, I, I might be able to convince myself of the diagnosis just anecdotally, but I, I want you to kind of dig in a little bit further and talk about like what really distinguishes someone with the diagnosis versus somebody who has some symptoms but doesn't really qualify? That's a great question. Uh, let me start by saying that ADHD, as we diagnose it in adults, we who engage in, in this field as, as part of our professional life, really look for the signs of the symptoms of ADHD having to have started earlier in life, before age 12. So you don't just wake up at age 30 and go, oh, I can't focus, I must have, a, I must have ADHD. What we look for a lot when we're evaluating people for the disorder is signs that these symptoms existed. And I'll talk about the symptoms in a moment. But the other thing you mentioned, which is so important, is that everyone in this world right now is getting distracted. But people with ADHD have a much harder time getting back on track, okay? So they are in the top 2% of inattentiveness or in the top 2% of people with restlessness and impulsivity compared to their peers. So many, many, many of us have trouble, for example, getting started on things or managing time. But people with ADHD really, really can't get to it without a lot of help, uh, trouble with staying organized and following directions. And again, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's not a hard line, right? I mean, if we're saying it's the top two to 3% of people with this, well, what about if you're in the top five or 6%? Do you qualify? Um, and again, that's why you need a clinician to help sort this out. It isn't just, you know, take a checklist and diagnose yourself. All the diagnosis checklists can do is get you to recognize, okay, this is a problem that looks bad enough that you should get further, further evaluated. Um, the other thing to keep in mind is that you may have had some of the symptoms of ADHD when you were earlier, but you could function better. So I'm switching it around and saying many people had symptoms, but not the disorder. It, the disorder comes in when the symptoms interfere with functioning to the extent to which people can't fulfill daily obligations either in work or in family, or in uh, relationships with friends, and or in the community. So it is a judgment call. It is a clinical diagnosis. And last thing I'll say, and this is really important, is that there are other causes for having inattentiveness, uh, trouble remembering things, trouble following directions. There are other causes besides ADHD. So not everybody with attention problems has ADHD. They may be caused by other things, for example trauma, anxiety, depression, substance use, some forms of uh, early uh, dementia. So, you know, the, it's really important why, why I say that, that, that if you think you might have ADHD, go get it evaluated, but don't make your, don't, don't assume it is because sometimes we discover other causes for the inattentiveness or mm. for the hyperactivity. No, it's interesting. I, I remember having conversations with other psychiatrists and clinicians, and, and they talk about uh, recognizing that rarely do mental health diagnoses appear just, just as one singular diagnosis, that so Very often they can, they can bleed into one another. And therefore, I mean, mm -hmm. you know, anxiety and depression oftentimes feel so deeply intertwined. And I, I guess I just want to add some emphasis to that, that um, it could be ADHD, but it might also be some form of depression or anxiety or trauma, right? I mean, these, yes, these are exactly. so, they co-occur together, don't they? Yes, yes, they do. And one other thing to keep in mind that I didn't mention, sleep disorders. Hmm. Now, not only sleep disorders like apnea, but in our current world, and especially during COVID, you know, we know that people being locked down or being, you know, indoors too much a lot, a lot of different changes occurred, and one of them was that people's sleep cycles got off whack. Hmm. So one of the first things I ask people who say they're having trouble paying attention is, well, how's your sleep? You know, are you getting a good night's sleep? Do you feel rested when you wake up? Because believe it or not, even cutting back by an hour on your sleep when you need, say, seven, eight hours and you're only getting five or six because of your lifestyle, that in itself over time 
can bring on the symptoms of ADHD. So yes, there are co-occurring or comorbid conditions that we look for, and I do think it's important to have the full picture looked into before you conclude it's one thing or another. Talk a little bit about medications, because mm-hmm. um, in, in the way that, you know, I think we, we, we so casually say, oh, you're so ADHD, words like Ritalin and Adderall are everywhere now. Like these, oh, yeah. these, are, these are drugs that I think most of us have heard of. Maybe some have sampled or some use daily. But I mean, yes. Yes. Do, do you feel <laughs> that, um, you know, this class of medications is, you know, one, truly helpful, and two, is being prescribed in ways um, that is appropriate and that is generally effective? Well, let me start by saying there is no question that if you have a diagnosis of ADHD and it's severe enough that whatever you've tried to get, you know, focused and to get organized or to be able to stay, you know, engaged in the things you're doing, if you if the other approaches aren't working, then considering a medication is a good idea. Uh, the most commonly used medications are what we call stimulant medications. And what you described as Ritalin, which is a brand name, or Concerta, I tend to, let's just talk about the compound, it's called methylphenidate. And then the other type of stimulants out there are amphetamines, and that includes Vyvanse and Adderall. So mm. everybody likes to use the brand names, but I try to explain, no, let's, let's not advertise a, a single product. Let's talk about either methylphenidate or amphetamine. Those are the two large classes of, of stimulants that we, we, we there, and there are many different subtypes, right? Because they're all, you can have different patterns of release. They're short acting, intermediate acting, long acting, you know, and I won't go into all the details, but there is really good evidence that when you administer these medications in a safe way, they can extend your ability to focus, to get things done, and to be less restless, less distracted, Um, overall, very, very helpful in the symptoms of ADHD. But the other side of the coin is that, A, they wear off at the end of the day. So they are, from the the moment you take it till, till it leaves your body, it's helpful. But then as it's being metabolized away, then you're back to, you know, whatever it is that you were experiencing before in the way of concentration problems. The other thing is there are side effects, and we always teach about those. So, you know, you you might not be able to sleep as well. It would cut your appetite. It can cause some people to get nervous or agitated. It can cause uh, people, if if they overuse it and don't sleep enough, they can get more serious side effects. So we Mm. always go through the, the hazards of this, and that's why we don't look at them lightly. It's not like, you know, just, oh, it's it's not just a cup of coffee. It's, a, it's more concentrated, it's more long-lasting, and it has side effects. Mm. Uh, now, one other important thing to keep in mind is that they can be misused and abused. Uh, and that's something that we're all worried about because when you start to overuse them or when you snort them, you know, these things can really, really damage your heart, your brain, your kidneys, and, and cause tremendous health problems. So we always worry, and that's why in our field we tend to look for um, trying to use medications that are less abusable so that no one's tempted to, you know, misuse them. Um, and then if we don't believe that, um, you know, the medications are working, we try other approaches, other medications. So if, if you start on methylphenidate and it doesn't help, different doses, etc., we might try you on amphetamine. If those two don't work, there are several non-stimulant medications that people can use. Um, mm. But again, there has to be someone supervising this. You know, it's not, it's not cool to just get these from a, a, you know, a mail order place and then just experiment yourself. You really need someone guiding you, a, a, a prescriber who knows what they're doing. And that makes me wonder how you have felt about the marketing of certain of these medications. Because I, I remember there was a lot of scrutiny, this is maybe 10 years ago, no doubt it could continue today about depression medications. You know, mm-hmm, these very mm-hmm. vague marketing campaigns. Of, are you feeling a little blue today? Are you down? Mm-hmm. And, you know, and it was, it was a way that it seemed they would prey upon things that we all experience in our lives, emotions we all have in our lives to try and right. kind of move us towards a medication. And it seems to me in this case, you're describing something very similar in the way that some of these medications have been marketed to, to the mass public. Yes. So 
again, this, this goes back even further when uh, all of us who were around when direct-to-consumer pharmaceutical advertising started, we saw a change in medicine overnight, okay? Patients were coming in saying, oh, I saw this drug, I want this drug, okay? Uh, and there's nothing I can do about it or you can do about it right now. That's just a fact of life in the United States. I do think that there's a very concerted effort on the part of all pharmaceutical companies to try to get people to, to take, you know, take their medications. So against that background, I would say that within the space of stimulant medication, um, there, are, there have been, especially since, since the Internet began, um, lots of different um, you know, groups that have tried, again, to um, make it more acceptable and, 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 and easier to get access. And, and sometimes, you know, it's, 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 they, they went overboard, Okay, they mm. made it so easy that if you just had a 15-minute phone call with someone and you answered a few questionnaires correctly, they'd say they'd send you a prescription. Mm. Uh, in my mind, that's not, uh, number one, that's, that's, it's, it's really unconscionable in my sense to get people started on medication without close monitoring. And I think it also played on people's fears, played on people's fears like, oh, I really need to get you know, we're back. I can eat. Uh, my job depends on this. I'm not doing well. My my relationships. So they are playing on people's fears, as you said. Um, the third thing that I really am worried about is that, without looking at your whole lifestyle and the way you are, you know, what your nutritional status is. I talked about sleep. Whether you're getting enough exercise and whether you're also able to relax and have time. Um, you know, just to to wind down. Th those are like the four pillars of of health. Period. And if before you start putting you know medication into yourself, make sure you're doing all the things that promote wellness. Um, and once that's happened, and if you've gotten um, you know what you what you what I would call a sound diagnosis, you know, of course, then you begin to use medication. But these these this marketing to consumers has always been a problem since it started. And yes, I worry that. The uh, stimulant uh, advertising is really harmful in, in, in the mm. long run. Maybe you can stay there with just this idea of a stimulant. And I mean, just that, that term alone makes me think of the greater culture and these uh, like absurd energy drinks out there mm. that, are, that are, I know that's not Adderall or any of these other classes of medications. And again, I'm using the generic term there or the, the name of the medication, but like, can you talk a well, little bit more? Well, I think more? that's really yeah. good. No, I'm, Jonathan, I'm glad you brought us into this field. Okay. There are two classes of stimulants that are now widely available. One is caffeine and the other is nicotine. And both of those, caffeine, both coffee drinks and the energy drinks, and nicotine, cigarettes and other forms of... Uh, those two have no, been known for, for years to be stimulants. Okay. And in fact, um, the history of... of, of Tea and coffee is such that in the early days when their, these properties were, were discovered, in, at, even in England, you know, and they were banned at first mm. because they thought they were overstimulating. This is back in the 19th century. So, yes, energy drinks nowadays and, and the caffeination of America really speaks to the notion that as a society, people are looking to be able to stay awake, get things done. And yeah, I have seen patients get over-caffeinated to the point where they had to go to the emergency room for palpitations. And, you know, caffeine itself, less, less, uh, in, less stimulating but than nicotine. So nicotine, think of it, how addictive it is, and yet at the same time, how hard it is to quit once you mm -hmm. start you also get a lot of benefit from it. So it isn't just physically addictive, it's actually psychologically addictive. And then to go back to what you asked before, people with ADHD who start smoking cigarettes have a much harder time quitting because nicotine is a good neuro, really helps neurotransmission, really helps people focus. So we have to admit that um, we have lots of non-pharmaceutical stimulant choices out there. And I am worried. That the thing that's happened with teens, you've, you've covered this, I'm sure, or at least you, people know about this, is the, the vaping that's going on with the Juul and these other uh, delivery systems, you know, non-cigarette non delivery systems for 
you know, administering high doses of nicotine to young people is getting them addicted. Mm. And I do worry about that. And I do worry also that, uh, you know, the same with these energy drinks that are, um, you know, becoming more and more popular. Yeah. Would you say, though, the experience of, of being highly caffeinated is, is akin to being on a type of medication you'd experience for ADHD? Well, interestingly, most p- people taking stimulants for their ADHD report that they feel calmer. Hmm. So they feel focused, they feel calm. So what's being stimulated by the stimulant is actually the part of the brain that allows us to focus, the frontal lobes. You know, it's, it's that you, you can, the noise dies down. People say, oh, I can finally think clearly. You know, I'm not as, I don't hear the clock ticking anymore. I can just get into what I'm doing. Yeah. So that sense of being over-caffeinated, no. That would be the equivalent of just taking too much stimulant, okay? So ideally, a cup of coffee should just let, help you feel calmer and focused. If you're drinking coffee or other caffeine products and you're feeling, quote, highly caffeinated, I'd say you're probably overdoing it. Can you also just for a moment talk about how there has been a shortage of ADHD mm-hmm. medications? I mean, I've heard from people in my own life saying I, I actually cannot even get the medications right now. What, what's been going on? Well, this is a crisis. It's been brewing for a while. First of all, stimulants are controlled by the Drug Enforcement Administration, the DEA. So what they do, the DEA does, is limit how many tons of stimulant can be produced every year. And it's highly, highly regulated. The pharmaceutical industry is given quotas. There's annual quotas given to each company for how much they can make of either methylphenidate or amphetamine. Those quotas, some have claimed that the quotas have limited the availability of the medication in the light of the growing demand of more people being diagnosed. So that's one piece. And by the way, it's like a whole other discussion we could have some other time. The DEA was created in 1970, the Drug Enforcement Agency, to uh, really clamp down on things like marijuana use and psilocybin and, and, and hallucinogens. And there was a whole class that's, that's, that was really, really outlawed. Then there was a second group, Schedule Two, where the stimulants fall in and also painkillers, you know, like... Uh, you know, the the uh, opiates that we saw being overprescribed. And so for years, um, you know, the, the, the DEA was just keeping track. And suddenly, once the opiate epidemic came in, uh, they realized, oh, my God, they, we, we haven't been watching this carefully enough. So not only is there a crackdown on the opiate, the distribution of opiates, but immediately, you know, uh, stimulants became thought of as suspicious as well. And so there's been this, you know, messaging of don't, don't be careful. Stimulants are harmful. Hmm. Well, no, stimulants are nothing like opiates. They don't harm people in this at all by in any way, similarly. And there's a much lower risk of bad occurrences, though they're there. Uh, And the majority of people use them safely and are not addicted. But Hmm. the reason I'm mentioning that link is that that led to a lot of people, in a lot of medical professionals, being afraid to prescribe stimulants, okay? Because suddenly, oh, look what happened with opiates. The same thing is going to be happening with stimulants. I call it the guilt by association because the two are classified together in the DEA, Schedule Two. Everybody thinks, oh, they're similar. They are no way similar. The third, and this is actually the newest wrinkle here, is that you've got these pharmaceutical um so there's the pharmaceutical producers, but now they're the distributors. Both the insurance companies that regulate your pharmacy benefit have deals with the large uh, pharmacies like CVS, Walgreens, etc. And what's suddenly beginning to happen is that there's some sort of, I would call it collusion going on. We don't really know the story, but a certain amount of supply of, say, one amphetamine product is made available to uh, pharmacies and they regulate. And because they're nervous about being seen as too permissive in distributing, because don't forget, the pharmacies themselves were also being uh, uh, sued when in, this, in the opiate um, epidemic. Um, mm-hmm. So similarly, they're now getting worried, like, okay, we got to be careful. So they're controlling 
where the uh, they're claiming that we only have a limited supply, which is in part true. Although when you ask the pharmaceutical companies, they think they don't they're not being limited. They're not even at the quotas yet. So they're they're claiming no, there shouldn't be a problem with supply. So if the pharmaceutical companies don't think there's a problem with supply, why is there a problem with going to the pharmacy and getting one? Well, it has to do with how this supply is being distributed regionally. And um, I, I have to tell you, I really, I wish we had more information. Let's stay with the greater medical system here. I mean, you, you just talked about how difficult it is to even find some of these medications at the moment. But we had an opportunity to speak um, with a woman in her 40s who recently got diagnosed with ADHD. And I think mm-hmm. even even the process of getting the diagnosis she talked about was really, really difficult. Just finding enough clinicians and experts. Yeah. I mean, wait time six months to a year. Can you address like... I mean, we want people to get help, but is there enough help out there to be received? And I think what we're trying to do to address the shortage is do a lot of education of practitioners in primary care. Um, I know the American Association of Family Physicians has a whole effort now to help family physicians become more comfortable. Uh, And there are websites now that are, there's a website called ADHDinadults.com that provides lots of online training. So I think the future will be such that we're doing our best to educate our colleagues, reduce the barriers to access like your patient described. But for now, unfortunately, yes, there's a long list and I don't have a quick fix for that. I would just say be persistent, find, you know, find a way to learn about ADHD before you go see the the, uh, the, the prescriber, speak to psychologists, especially those that um, um, practice cognitive behavioral therapy because they are skilled at helping you gain uh, int- insight into what makes it hard to stay focused and actually techniques to improve motivation and reduce procrastination. And you mentioned something there, sometimes shorthand called CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy. Just, I wonder if you have any other thoughts as to why maybe a therapy like that tends to be very effective for something like oh. ADHD. <laughs> well, I could talk for hours about that. I'm, I'm the co-author of a manual on, on cognitive behavioral therapy for adult ADHD with my colleague, Russ Ramsey. And here's how we break, we break it down. Number one, just you got to learn that why it's hard to stay on task is that you may be asking your brain to stay focused on something for a longer period of time than you're, you're able to, right? It's, is it because the task is not rewarding enough? Is it that it's too difficult? Is it that you're not in the right frame of mind to sit down and get things done? And so we really look at things like procrastination and helping you overcome motivational difficulties, chunking tasks into smaller pieces. We have something called the 10-minute rule, which is let's say you're really not doing something you know you need to do, like pay your bills. And they're piling up on your desk. And you look at that pile and you go, oh my God, Look at all those bills. How am I going to do this? What we say is take 10 minutes, set a timer for 10 minutes, and just for 10 minutes, just start opening the envelopes. And then when the 10 minutes go is up, the buzzer goes off, you would say to yourself, can I go for another 10 minutes or should I just take a break and come back later? But the 10-minute rule helps people, you know, we can all do something we don't like for 600 seconds. And at the end of those 600 seconds, the very least is we've overcome our, our, our avoidance enough that we know that this can be done. And the truth is that once you start doing something that you've been avoiding, it turns out we actually start to get engaged. One of the main f- goals of cognitive behavioral therapy is to really help people stay engaged in the things that are difficult for them to stay engaged with. Now, there's other tricks like helping you sleep better and making sure you're not turning on your your cell phone inappropriately, reducing distractions, creating quiet places that help you stay focused. Or if if, if certain kinds of music or other things help you, maximizing the chances that when you sit down to do something, you're able to, um, to do it. And finally, not last, but certainly not least, some people start with this, is learning how to use a planner, learning how to organize your time, learning how to 
systematically make choices so that your list of what you're going to do that day isn't so long and so disorganized that you don't even know what you're trying to do. Just keep it simple and say, these are the three things I'm going to do in the morning. These are the three things I'm going to do this afternoon and keeping track of how that's going. Okay, so these are, these are some very concrete skills. There's both, you know, behavioral skills like organizing yourself. And then last, lastly, the cognitive therapy part of it is helping people overcome their negative self-talk because mm. people with ADHD often feel down about themselves, feel like they're not good, they feel afraid of failure, they've experienced failure, and they tend to disengage very quickly from whatever they're doing as soon as things get difficult uh, or as soon as they think they're not doing the task successfully. And so we work on, on looking at the, um, the thought processes, you know, we, we, we call them dysfunctional thoughts that people have that keep them from um, staying, you know, staying engaged. And th- by getting engaged, it's easier to stay focused. Mm. Yeah, the, the the self-talk is so crucial in CBT. Oh, it's so crucial. I mean, it really is. And we, and, and I, I can tell you, we've learned about these, these thought processes. People have what we call self-mistrust. It's like, I'm not sure I can do this because sometimes I can focus, sometimes I can't. And it's that uncertainty about being able to get the job done that often leads people to... Um, to just really, like, uh, like I said, not hang in there when they, when they, when they, when they really, if they did hang in there, you'd, they'd be surprised at what they could achieve. So we practice these things. We all need a roadmap to get us where we're going, and cognitive therapy really offers, gives people roadmaps, ways to kind of get around the the uh, barriers that are stopping them from getting where they want to go. Yeah. It's been so wonderful to be joined by Dr. Anthony Rostain, Chair of Psychiatry and Behavioral Health at Cooper University Healthcare. Um, thanks for clarifying so many things today and, and sharing some of your research and knowledge with us. Really appreciate the time. Okay, great. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed this. Still to come, getting an ADHD diagnosis as an adult. Our next guest says she's been, quote, compensating all her life. We'll hear her struggle and what made her think something wasn't right. That's all ahead on Life Examined right here on KCRW. Stay close. I'm Jonathan Bastian, back with Life Examined on KCRW. We just heard Dr. Anthony Rostain, Chair of Psychiatry and Behavioral Health at Cooper University Healthcare, help us navigate the complexities of ADHD. He talked about the shortage of medication and why he recommends cognitive behavioral therapy as an integral part of treatment. But as we noted at the beginning of the program, adults who suffer from ADHD often don't actually know what's wrong with them and assume that being disorganized or drifting off is just part of who they are. Adults with ADHD frequently also suffer from anxiety, depression, or mood swings. So when do we know then when something just isn't right? And what does that internal struggle with ADHD really feel like? Mara O'Connell works as a behavioral therapist in the Brookline Public School District in Massachusetts. She was recently diagnosed with adult ADHD, and she joins me now to share her story. Mara O'Connell, welcome to Life Examined. Hi, great. Happy to be here. So Mara, you described growing up in a really loving family, and you were always a great student, getting straight A's through middle school, high school. I, I think you, at one point you even used the word you were able to coast through a lot of school. Um, you even did well through college. But it sounds like after college, you began to really wonder if something was going on with you. You weren't feeling quite right. So talk about what happened kind of after you got through university. Okay. uh, After college, I went into education and started as a special educator working with kids with autism, Um, a really intense job. Um, and within that time, I, you know, it's important to note that I was probably struggling with some anxiety, some depression. I'd still been, you know, really grieving the loss of my mother. So at the time I had seen my primary care physician and just, um, you know, shared that I was really anxious. So she put me on some anti-anxiety medicine and I was being followed by a psychopharmacologist. So here I am, um, you know, months later teaching, I enrolled in graduate school and I'm still feeling that things aren't quite right. And during one of the visits I had with the psychopharmacologist, 
I decided to be vulnerable and take a chance. And I said, um, gosh, you know, I, I'm really feeling like there's something else going on with me cognitively. And so, you know, he asked me some questions, not a lot. And he said, what do you do? And I said, oh, I'm a teacher and I'm in graduate school. And I, I must have shared some of my concerns around feeling overwhelmed, feeling um, I couldn't focus. I had problems with attention. I had problems with the organization. And I remember this so visibly, vividly. He said to me, well, what's your GPA? And I you know, said, oh, a 3.8 or a 3.9. And he said, well, if you are a full-time teacher in graduate school with a you know, high GPA, there's nothing wrong with you. Wow. So they, they kind of brush it off. And they're like, don't, don't worry about this. You're fine. Um, what kind of an impact did that have on you moving forward? It sort of closed that door. So then for years and years, I continued to struggle with the same things, organization, time management, despite my best efforts. At this point, I'm beginning to become a seasoned educator, a seasoned special educator, where I am working with children and families around the same types of things that I'm struggling with. So I've had a really great primary care physician for many, many years. And so I would see her at well checks and sort of go back and forth and say, gosh, I, I think I might be depressed. You know, maybe that's why I'm struggling with all these things. Or, you know, I'd go back to her the next year and I'd say, oh, gosh, maybe I'm just anxious. And that's why I'm struggling with all these things. And so she and I would sort of talk about these things. And sometimes she would request medication related to anxiety, related to depression. I would start something, not really feel that it was helping, and then quickly sort of, you know, push it to the side and say, okay, I'm just going to continue to plow through this, mm. right? This is just, I guess, who I am. Right. And I'm sensing some resignation on your part. You know, you're doing what you could sharing with your doctor, but basically being convinced that, you know, nothing else could be done. So what happens next? I was blessed to become a mother. I have two wonderful sons. One is 10 and one is seven. And they have both been, they've both been diagnosed with ADHD. Very, very different profiles. So my older son is maybe what they would have referred to as ADD. So he's sort of a, a low arousal guy and just someone that's very, very distracted. Bright child, wonderful child, but really struggles to sort of pay attention and stay focused on things. My younger son is completely the opposite. So he um, is a high arousal child. He is constantly moving, has an engine that's running at like a thousand miles an hour all the time. Again, bright child, wonderful child, but really sort of struggling with that sort of that part of his um, neurology and, and his learning profile. And so, you know, given given my experience as an educator and now I'm not only an educator, but I'm a mother of children who are struggling with similar things. And it really caused me when I watched them and I thought, oh my gosh, these are things that I've struggled with. You know, I kind of sort of can't sit still and I can't be organized or someone might be talking to me and then I get distracted. Um, <clears throat> I used to always sort of say, my husband would talk to me and I would never listen, which is, you know, kind of a funny joke, but it's it, it may be not a funny joke to him. Mm. And I would just always kind of attribute it to, I'm not a multitasker. I can't chew gum and walk at the same time. But what it really was is I, I was having trouble focusing and attending. So finally, about um, a little over a year ago, I found myself at another well check with my primary care physician, who at this point I'd been seeing for well over a decade and had a lovely relationship with. And I had told her about my children over the years, and I said, you know, I think I have ADHD. I think this is what it is. And she said, well, okay, if this is what you're really feeling, then I think it makes sense that you should have some type of evaluation. So I said, fine, great. She made a referral 
to the psych department, put that through, um, and I sort of just went on my merry little way. Um, after a few months, she followed up with me and said, did you hear from them? And I said, no, I haven't. And she said, well, I look at the referrals here. You know, why don't you reach out to them? So I did reach out to them and come to find out they um, were understaffed and were without anyone that could sort of prescribe medicine. And they, they had been without someone for a very long time and they weren't going to have someone for a while. Mm. So I said, okay, well, I think I'll I think I'll wait a little bit longer. So I waited a few more months, and then I reached back out to them. Same story, and they said, would you be interested in going through the evaluation process? We are supposed to have someone staffed in say four months, and we can take it from there. At this point, I had been waiting like a, a year. Wow, a year is. That a typical wait time? Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, the reality with um, the healthcare system is if you go through, and I know this from the standpoint of a professional and also a parent, if you go through a traditional medical model, a hospital model, you are going to be waiting for a very, very long time. Um, the wait lists are 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 vast, uh, pre-COVID and and then even worse post-COVID. So what you can do if you are a person of means is you can decide to access sort of a private provider, private neuropsychologist or a private psychologist and get these evaluations done. But they often come with a really large out-of-pocket cost. You know, here I am an educator with two young boys and I certainly am not going to spend that type of money on myself. Mm -hmm. So I, you know, chose to sort of continue suffering as I had been for so long and managing it and compensating. Um, but finally, I said, okay, let's do the evaluation. And I met with a psychologist and sort of, you know, she just did an intake and I shared all of my thoughts and all of my feelings and sort of my history. And, it, and she said, well, how about we do this? Why don't we complete an ADHD screener. And so I did, and then we met again, and she sort of confirmed that all the bells and whistles were there for ADHD. That brings me to sort of where I am now. So now I am sort of post-diagnosis, the world has opened up, and I need to decide now um, what I need to do that I haven't already been doing to sort of move forward and make life easier and less stressful because it it for sure has been incredibly stressful to sort of struggle with these things and not and I was compensating I mean I've been compensating well probably for pretty much my whole life but um but I think at my own detriment, right? Yeah. So I've been very, very stressed about it. And I've had a lot of guilt and sort of beating myself up, you know, mm-hmm. oh my gosh, what, how, how am I, you know, I'm writing everything down in a paper calendar. I'm putting things in a Google calendar. I have alarms. I have this. How is it possible that I am still um, making these same mistakes over and over again? Yeah. And how does it feel for you at this point in your life, you know, an adult, I, I believe in, in your 40s or so, to, yes. to, to now receive this diagnosis? Like, how does, that, how does that settle with you, finally kind of getting this, this confirmation of something that maybe you had suspected but, but didn't believe in fully or wasn't quite sure of? There has been a calmness to it because there's an answer, right? Because for decades, I had sort of been searching for an answer and and evaluating myself and evaluating what I knew was available in the research and in terms of therapy and what was out there. So there has been some peace in the affirmation that, yes, this is not just you making mistakes. This is part of your profile. And although you know, I I have been managing it. There are now 
more ways that I can explore a little bit more directedly to manage it better. Mm-hmm. Can you also go just a little bit further into what what you described as having a, a really hard time with planning, um, with feeling overwhelmed? You know, because certainly those are aspects that many of us can can uh, identify with, right? Mm-hmm. But it's, mm-hmm. it seems like there was maybe a, an added layer there for you, even as you said, you were creating all these alarms and Google calendars. Like, bring us into what that's like for you trying to maintain some focus or organization when it feels like it's maybe not quite possible. For me, there, there's been a little compulsion to it. So... If I have created an appointment or perhaps I've created an appointment for my child, I will obsessively check and check and recheck and Mm -hmm. recheck. Okay, let me look. What day, what time, what day, what time? And even with that sort of diligence and that sort of obsession, somehow I might mess it up. And I would just be like, how is this even possible, right? Hmm. I am doing everything I'm supposed to be doing. Or, you know, in terms of, um, you know, a common piece of this type of profile is, you know, high arousal distraction, sort of someone that has a motor running really fast. That is, is me. I see it in my younger son. I could be you know, walking through a room, I'm walking at a fast pace, I'm trying to do a thousand things at once. And I'm like completely forgetting where I am in space. I'm forgetting what I'm doing. I'm missing stuff. I'm misplacing things. Thank goodness for my Apple watch. My husband kind of laughs at me every time I, you know, put it up to my face and say, uh, Siri, find my iPhone, (laughs) you Mm -hmm. know, because I've put it down somewhere in a, you know, within completing all these tasks that I'm just not, it's not cohesive. I'm not organizing them well. So there's a lot of that. Yeah. It's almost like an out of body experience where I'm like, what, what am I doing? Wait a minute. What am I, I just flew through that so fast. I, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know what I just did. Hmm. So, yeah, thank you. No, thank you for sharing that. I think that that gives us a, a much deeper sense of what that's like. And uh, it sounds to me like you're now on on the cusp of deciding how you're going to take action. And and you know, you have this really interesting perspective in that you have two young sons that have a diagnosis. So, um, I mean, how do you feel about maybe venturing into medication or therapy? Like, what, what do you feel like your options are? And are you willing to go down those paths? Yeah, I mean, so by trade, I'm not only a special educator, but I am a board side for behavior analyst, which is an applied field of psychology that basically um, looks at the study of human behavior and applies that to meaningful learning outcomes in students. And so I, 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 the evidence is clear, right? That the research on medication is strong. The research on therapy is strong. The research on a combination of both of those things is the strongest. So I think I have to explore these things, right? I, I kind of... I need to explore all options available to me at this point, as well as perhaps some more um, holistic approaches. You know, Mm. I've been taking the time to sort of do some more breathing to actively slow my body down to, to quite literally take slower and measured footsteps and to kind of feel myself grounded so um, I'm looking at, you know, both the traditional ways of treatment and then some, some, some broader ones that really look at a healthier um, body and mind. Well, Mara, thank you so much. Are there any other just ideas or thoughts or feelings you'd want to share with us as somebody who's going through this? And I know that, you know, part of you talking with us today is trying to be helpful to any other people out there going through something similar. Right? So any, any, any just last thoughts that you wanted us to get to? If I could speak to my younger self, I would say don't wait too long 
to ask for help. I think, you know, there's still such, such, such stigma around mental health issues, around neurodivergence. Some, you don't want to believe you're different. No one wants to believe that. Mm. I don't want to say that there's anything wrong with you because that's not what it is. But I wish my younger self would have, would have pushed a little bit more. I wish I pushed back in that metaval when I was told that there was nothing wrong with me when mm. I knew that I was struggling and that I was working so incredibly hard and I still wasn't making it happen. I encourage people to believe in themselves and to follow your gut and to ignore the feelings that you may have around stigma or other people's perceptions of who you are or labels. And, um, you know, if you're struggling, then you need to get some help. Far too many of us struggle in silence, especially women, especially mothers. And it, we shouldn't be doing that. Well, I've been speaking with Mara O'Connell and recently has gone through the process of being diagnosed with ADHD. And it's been, I think, really wonderful and powerful to hear from you about your journey today. Mara, thanks for spending some time with us on the program. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. All right, that's it for this week. The producer of Life Examined is Andrea Brody. And now we'd love to hear from you. How is all this information sitting with you? Have you been diagnosed with ADHD? Do you have family members that have the diagnosis? We'd love to hear stories about how folks have gotten help and what the future looks like. You can find a link to our Facebook group at kcrw.com slash lifeexamined or by searching in Facebook for Life Examined. You can also connect with me on Instagram at Jonathan W. Bastion. You're listening to Life Examined right here on your public radio station, KCRW. You can find our archive online at kcrw.com slash lifeexamined. I'm Jonathan Bastian. Have a wonderful day, and we'll see you next week. Take care.